We've been in a series in the book of Hosea called Steadfast Love, and this is week number five, and it's been pretty sobering, to be honest. The last four weeks uh, have been sobering as we've read through the book because we've seen this pattern of the people of Israel basically have got themselves in a right mess. They have broken their covenant relationship with God. They have uh, strayed away from him. They've sought out other gods and other things to worship, in fact, the book describes it that they've been like, uh, uh, God has been a faithful husband, they've been an adulterous wife. And much of that continues uh, in these passages that we're going to look at today, chapters 8 and 9. Lots of the same themes, some of the same ideas. And we've drawn parallels between themselves and us that we, we've seen uh, in many ways, um, parallels between our society, some of the issues that we face, some of the problems we get into with some of the issues that Israel were facing. And so we're going to look at it today, again, chapters 8 and 9, and some of the same themes will come out, but I'm hoping that we will look at it in a slightly different way. In, in many ways, what I'm hoping to do is how do we, after seeing this passage and drawing out some of the things from it, how do we view these sorts of passages about judgment uh, of, of God? How do we view them in light of Christ? How do we deal with our sin? How do we you know, stop from going on sinning? Uh, in light of Jesus. And so that's where we're going to go today. But we're going to begin by reading the passage. We're going to dive in. And so I'm going to read um, all of chapter 8, most of chapter 9. Uh, we'll follow through uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in together. So this is Hosea 8, starting at verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel will spurn the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it's from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing corn has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they're among the nations as a useless vessel. For they've gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Write a right for him, my laws, by the ten thousands. They would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and will punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah's multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not the people. For you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You've loved the prostitute's wages on threshing floors, where the wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall foul them. And then skipping down to verse 15. Every evil of theirs 
it is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, and they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I'll put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they've not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Like I said to you, this is a sobering passage. And you see that the the theme of most of it is that Israel have gotten themselves into a position of uh, basically self-reliance. As a a society, as a culture, they have forgotten their need for God and have come completely dependent on themselves. And and you see that so at large in our country today, in our nation, in our society. We have become very self-reliant. We're very self-sufficient. We crave independence to to do things the way we want to do it. Well, in fact, most popular song, uh, Funerals, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. People are proud of the fact I did it the way I want to do it. I live my life the way I want to. And and so everything becomes about ourselves and and trying to sort things out ourselves. In fact, even the way that we we sort out issues. I was uh, in my group this week talking about um, this very idea. Someone was was, was sharing, someone who works in um, in, in medicine, uh, about how uh, sometimes in, in, in therapy or to deal with mental health, often people will talk about mindfulness. And mindfulness is its roots is very much in, in kind of Zen Buddhism and basically it's all about trying to find the answer within, trying to kind of, you know, uh, in your own mind, in your own self, trying to kind of, uh, you know, take stock. And, and all of it is rooted in this self-reliance. And we see it with Israel. We see it played out in three different ways. The first way is verse four. They have appointed kings, it says, uh, they've made kings, but not through me. So they have risen up, uh, they've put kings above their nation, but they've not consulted God about it. They've not prayed to God about it. It's not been something that they've particularly bothered kind of consulting with him. We uh, appointed the king in our nation just a few weeks ago. And you see the whole thing, even in our very secular nation, was orientated around the church service, around God, around prayer. Israel, no, no, not through the Lord. They've not done it through God. The complete opposite of what Jesus modelled. Luke 6, Jesus, before he appoints his 12 disciples, he says that he spent the night in prayer, praying to the Father. He said, I need to seek God about who, who these people that I'm going to appoint to be my disciples. And so we see that that principle, they've, they've forgotten their need for God. They've forgotten, maybe even, you know, as David, the psalmist would say, 1, 2, Psalm 127, unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchmen, they labour in vain. You can appoint kings, you can do this, you can do that, but unless it's through and in the Lord, unless God is in it, it's worthless. And and we can be the same. We can so easily forget our need for God when we're trying to make decisions. Now, I'm not saying we take this to the extreme. I'm not suggesting we're those people who deliberate in the shops prayerfully, whether you get Cadbury's or, or, you know, um, a galaxy. You don't need to pray about that because Cadbury's is the easy option. You know, I'm not saying that when you get home, you spend time, let's pray and fast on, you know, should we use the brown rice or the white rice for dinner tonight? We're, we're, not, we're not talking about that sort of thing, but when it comes to major life decisions, when it comes to sh- things that shape our lives, where we should work, where we should live, what city we should be in, what church we should be at, who we should marry, what vocation we should do, what we should kind of do with our lives, these are decisions that we must seek the Lord on. 
We must say, no, this is not just, I don't just want to make this decision on my own. I'm capable of just doing it my way. I want to seek God. I want to take counsel. I want to be in his word. I want to pray. We don't, we want to fight against the tide of self-reliance because Israel fell into that trap. They just appoint kings and princes, but not through the Lord. The second thing we see they do is, is self-appointed gods. And I spoke a lot about this the last couple of weeks. It says in, in verse six that they've made a kind of a calf of Samaria. We've seen these kind of, uh, the calf is roots in the bottom of Sinai when, when uh, with Moses, they make a golden calf, their own God. And it says later on in verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord doesn't accept it. They're, they're making sacrifices, but not to the Lord. So again, they've, They've created their own gods, their own idols to worship and orientate their lives around. And I won't go into too much of that now because we spent a lot of time on that two weeks ago. But that's another way where they're trying to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, rejecting God and choosing to worship other things. And then the third way is they've become um, self-reliant with the allies that they've chosen to uh, align themselves with. There's different kingdoms around, uh, the kingdom of Assyria especially, and because Israel are concerned about uh, political pressures, maybe military pressure, uh, they forget to stop trusting God for their protection and for their guidance and think, you know what, um, God is great, but instead let's, let's buddy up with the king of Assyria. Let's buddy up with some of the other kingdoms. Let's build our own fortresses. That's literally what, what he would say in, I think it's verse 10. You know, they hire allies among the nations and I'll gather them up. And then it says in verse 14, they have, uh, they've forgotten these maker, they've built palaces, they're building fortified cities. They're thinking the way that we can find comfort and security and rest and all of these things and, and, and is, is not in God, is not in our maker, but is in the king of Assyria or is in building these big fortresses that will protect us. Now, I don't think any of us are having to, um, you know, buddy up with, uh, foreign kings and think, you know, who can we get some security from? I don't think any of us are out here building huge wall, you know, let me just build a massive wall in my back garden, massive. You know, but we, we do feel guilt into the trap of where do we find comfort and security from? Where do we look to for our comfort and our security? Is it God or is it a nice cold beer at the end of the week or a nice takeaway or is it uh, just uh, kind of things that we revel in? Think, yeah, no, those are things are not wrong, but where do we, when we've had a, we're, in, we're in a low moment, when you're going through a difficult time, when you're in a dark place, what is the thing or the person that you look for for comfort and for security? Is it God or is it something, someone else? Because for Israel, it becomes something else. It become kings and kingdoms and, and military powers. And so we see again this, this pattern of, of self-reliance that just keeps coming through and through and through and through. But again, is, is essentially is summed up in, in the passage. It says they are a nation that have forgotten God. And we can be so, so guilty too. And all of this kind of is summed up, hinges on this wonderful verse in verse 7. That basically, um, talking about this, Hosea, quite a famous verse from Hosea uh, 8, he says, For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. This is an agricultural proverb that many of us will be uh, familiar with the, the, the kind of the idea of it. You reap what you sow. You reap into the wind, in the end a whirlwind comes. We, we would make lots of phrases like that. You make your bed, you lie in it. 
in the end, you know, your sin will come back to bite you. We, we're kind of familiar with this idea that, that in the end, things will come back to get you. And that's what's going to happen to Israel. All of these things they're sowing in, this self-reliance, this forsaking God, this choosing to take military alliances, all of these things forsaking God, in the end, they are making their bed and they're going to have to lie in it. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be judgment. And when it comes to sin, you'll see that some of those things will be uh, immediate. There's going to be immediate things that happen to them. There's going to be things that uh, uh, impact over time. And there's some things that are going to impact generations. And it'd be the same for us. Sometimes our sin, it, it can have immediate consequences for us. It can have consequences that, that we may not recognise straight away, but in time they're coming. There's other things that we do is well, it's going to impact generations below us. The consequences of, of our sin are severe, which is why we've been calling in this series, we must take sin seriously. The sin in our lives, we must deal with it and take it seriously. It's not lightweight. These things provoke God to anger and judgment. It's not lightweight, we take it serious. And you see in the passage that there's three ways um, immediately in chapter nine that these kind of, the, the, what they've reaped how it will be, you know, what they've sown, how it will be reaped. And so the three examples that you get are, there's, there's going to be barrenness. It's the first thing, it says it in, in verse 14, it says that there'll be miscarriages. It says that they won't be able to have children, literally says that in, in, in the text, that, 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 that they won't continue. So there's going to be barrenness for the people of Israel. Think, wow, it's very sobering, very difficult passage to, to read um, for them. It says that, that they, they will give birth to their beloved children, but they won't have their beloved children. And you read again, so there'll be barrenness. There's going to be estrangement from God. That is, in a way, being separated from God. Verse 15 means that, uh, verse 15 literally says that exact thing. It says, I will drive them out of my house. So there's going to be separation from God. Once they are a people uh, uh, rooted in God, in his presence, now they're going to be separated from him. And the final thing that, that it says is that there's going to be homelessness. It says that, um, verse 15, again, it says, I will, or verse 2 actually, verse 1 and 2, it says, I will drive them out. It says, they've not listened to me. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And that, if you know the story of Israel, has become their legacy. They've become wanderers among the nations. And so you see, there's ramifications for their sin. All played out, all, of, all as a consequence of their rejecting and denial of God, going against him. There's going to be ramifications through generations. This will look like exile. It's going to look like military domination. It's going to look like being scattered. It's going to be, be look like barrenness for them. And so you see all of these things play out. And the, and, and the message is pretty bleak. And so the question we, we've got to ask ourselves is, well, how do we respond to this sort of message? Where do we go from here? Where do we kind of take it? Because Israel's pattern was basically just doing this again and again and again. They would repent, they would turn to God, and then they would carry on doing the same thing. And that can easily be our story. Repent, turn to God, but then we go on doing the same. And you think, well, how do we break out of this? Do we just try harder? I, you know what? I sinned last week. I repented of it. I've just carried on doing more and more. I must just try harder this week. Well, when you do that, what you see is you fall just straight back into the pattern of self-reliance, relying on yourself, thinking you can achieve it. What we must see and what we've been trying to point out in this series is that the only answer, the only solution, the only way to break free from it is Jesus. 
He is the only answer that we have to really break free from this pattern of sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. And I want us just to look at two verses from the book of Hebrews that show us how Jesus provides us a solution like no other. And so that is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Now, just as I turn there, wonderful verses talking again about Jesus uh, as, as our high priest. And talking of Jesus, it says this, it says, uh, we have a great high priest, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Glorious verse about who Jesus is and, and, and what he came to do. Jesus is someone that was tempted in every way. And I just want to talk about sin and temptation for a moment. Because one of the things first we have to remember is that temptation is not sin. If you're tempted on something, it doesn't mean that, that, that suddenly you're sinning. Jesus himself, he says, was tempted in every way, but was without sin. And temptation, it, uh, it kind of basically works like this, that we would have desires for something. There's a, there's a desire that is actually probably a healthy desire, i.e. I might have a desire to make, to make some money. I want to pay bills. I want to feed. I want to eat food. I want to do things. That's fine. But we can cross the line of that, des that good desire to be an unhealthy one, which is greed. We have a desire to eat food. It's good. Your food needs nourishment. It's a gift from the Lord. But it can become an unhealthy desire for gluttony. Someone might have a natural sexual desire from the Lord, good, but it can easily cross into the line of being lust. And, and, and the line between temptation and sin is where we, we have a desire to do something that is not that, that, that crosses over that line and we act upon it and then we enter into sin. It, it can easily be done. When, uh, funny example, when me and Sylvia were getting married a few years ago, I thought to myself, right, you know, I want to get sort of, you know, wedding ready. So no more Morleys. Right? We put that one on the table when we was engaged. Uh, if there's, if not from South London and, and you don't know what Morley's is, well, shame on you. But um, we would go to Morley's, but we say, you know what? No more Morley's till we get married. It's about a 10 month period. And there's nothing more tempting than, than kind of trying to not eat fried chicken and walking past a shop, the beautiful bright lights, you know, and you're kind of there being lured in. I withheld temptation. I must, you know, say that those desires didn't cross in. Um, but, but we've all got silly examples and more serious examples where, you know, you think, you know what, I don't want to eat chocolate and it's there on the table and you feel like it's staring and it's talking to you and you think, I'm going to withhold from temptation. Or sometimes we succumb to it and we give in. We, we, we all kind of know, that, and, and Jesus is no different. This is what this verse is saying, is that we don't have a, a God, a high priest, one who represents us, who's, who doesn't understand temptation. Not just menial things about fried chicken and chocolate, but serious things. Jesus would have known the full pull and tug and temptation of sin. He would have known what it was like to uh, be abandoned, to be rejected, to be despised, to be humiliated, to be embarrassed and shamed. He would have had temptation to lie and to be deceitful, even when he's questioned before he's going to die. Are you really the son of Christ? Could have said no, would have been saved, torture and death, probably tempting to do so. He would have been tempted to, like you know, everyone else, when he's around uh, women that he, he, he maybe found attractive, he would have been tempted to lust. He would have been tempted to lash out in violent anger when people are oppressing him or questioning him or, or, or come back with gossip and slander about people in a nasty way. He would have been tempted in all of those ways, just as we are. He would have felt the full tug, the full pull, the full draw of sin, yet he, he didn't go there. He resisted temptation. 
And he, and he, he kind of provides a way for us in many ways to do the same. And I, and I, I just want to give us uh, three practical ways, I think, that can help us to be those who resist temptation. Three of the ways that I think, because all of us day by day will face temptations, desires, longings that we want to put aside. And, and here's just three practical ways that I'm hoping will help us. And what, the first one of those is, is really clear, is, is boundaries. Putting in our life appropriate boundaries that are going to help us to honour God with our lives. For example, if you know you're more liable to temptation to certain things, if you know you're more liable uh, to make poor choices late at night, um, you know, you, you may consider going to bed earlier. If you know that sitting on your bed late at night with your phone is going to lead you to doing things you shouldn't do, then you leave your phone downstairs. Even me, when I was in, in my student days or straight after, I found uh, even sort of dealing, wrestling with lust, I found social media a very, very unhelpful thing for me. In no way helped me. I was thinking, I was thinking no, I, I'm being faced with uh, images and things all the time I don't want to see. So I deleted all of my social media. I don't have any of it. You won't find me on there. And it was an element of, you know, I mean, Jesus said it. If your right hand is calling you to sin, cut it off. Sometimes you have to take drastic things, put boundaries in place. This is what's more important to me is honouring the Lord. So you, sometimes you have to take a drastic step, put boundaries in place. If you struggle with alcohol and your relationship with alcohol, don't spend your time in clubs and pubs and bars. If you find certain, if you know there's certain individuals that you really, when you spend time with them, you're drawn in, you're going to put boundaries in place. Limit the amount of time you spend with them. Don't spend any time with them at all. So we have to put boundaries in place, different for different ones. We have to know ourselves, know our weak spots. So put boundaries in place. The other thing is, is accountability. The thing that the devil wants uh, the, the, sort of the most for us is to try and live out and battle sin on our own. In the secrecy, in a dark place. Because there's shame and there's guilt and no one knows and we just wrestle and find it hard. But one of the best things we can do is share with somebody else. And one of the best things you can do today if you're struggling with sin in your life is speak to another brother or sister in the Lord and just say, listen, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with the way I handle my money. I keep gambling away. I'm struggling with my relationship with alcohol. I'm struggling with this relationship. I'm really struggling with this, with that. That should be normal conversation for us as Christians rather than just pretending we've got it all together. It should be normal for us. How you doing? I'm really struggling with this. Can you pray with me? Can you support me? Can you help keep me accountable? Can you check in with me in a couple of weeks' time? How are you doing with that area? How are you doing with that? We have honest conversation. It's massive. Bring it into the light. And so that would be for loads of us today. If there's areas in your life, be accountable to someone. Someone you trust, someone you know, someone who's, who's reliable, who's a friend. Speak with someone about it. Pray with someone about it. Be accountable. And the last thing I would say is, is what we call spiritual disciplines. These are ways to, um, in many ways, the, the, the more time that we spend with God, delighting in him, loving him, the more time we're drawn away from sin, being in his word, praying, worshipping, being with believers, all of these things that we know are good for us, not because we're scoring points, not because we have to do these for God to love us, because we get to delight in who God is, because spending time with us, with him, transforms our heart, renews our mind, makes us more like him, leads us to operate life in the spirit rather than the flesh. And so we do these things because they're for our good, they're for our benefit, and we delight being with the Lord. And if we do those three things, those are just three tools to help us fight daily the battle of temptation and sin that we may be holy and follow the Lord. And in all that, 
want to close with this. Again, we look to Jesus who was our great example <laughs> because he himself fought the battles that we face. In fact, there's just a quote that I want to read uh, as we're finishing about C.S. Lewis because someone once said to C.S. Lewis, if Jesus never sinned, he doesn't know what real temptation is like. He can't sympathise. He can't empathise with me because he never tasted the full force of temptation. And C.S. Lewis wrote in response, it's a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Jesus knew the full weight of temptation, but he never gave in. And it's because of who he is, because his life was spotless and perfect and blameless that he was without sin. And the Bible says he represents us because that's who, who, who Jesus is to us. One, it, it means that actually one example he is and it means that we respond in a very different way. Because as we finish this message, there's three ways you can respond. The first is you can say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to carry on sinning, crack on with my life, do what I want to do. Be blase. You will reap, uh, you know, you will in the end reap a whirlwind. The second thing is you think, I'm just going to be self-reliant. Like I'm just going to try harder. That in the end is law. If I try harder, if I do more, in the end, it leads to hopelessness. I'm no good. I'm never going to get better. I just keep doing the same thing again and again and again. It leads to hopelessness and despair. And, and it's, a, it's a really rubbish way to live the Christian life, week by week, feeling guilty, feeling a mess, feeling rubbish. Or the third option is grace. That we lean into grace, knowing that we have Jesus Christ, who is a high priest, a high priest who represents us before God, who is spotless, who is perfect, who is, who is glorious in all of his ways. And that because he has lived a spotless, perfect life, because he has died and shed his blood for our sins, because he has taken on the punishment and the judgment of God for our sins, because he's taken it all upon himself. When we lean into that, we realize, wow, I don't deserve grace. Grace, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I, I've I've not done most amazing things this week. I've made mistakes. I've done this. I've done that. But it's not about me. It's not self-reliant on my performance on how I do. It's all about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's achieved for me as my great high priest. That's the third option. That's grace. John Piper, a pastor in America, uh, describes it like this. He says, the throne of grace is God meeting the need of undeserving people. Friends, we don't deserve this free gift of grace. It's a scandal, but it's not based on our performance. It's not self-reliant at all. It's all based on who Jesus is and what he's done. And when we foster a relationship day by day, being amazed by the grace of God, that he loves us just the same, there's nothing we can do to make him love us more or less, that when we, when we enjoy and delight in him, our battle against sin and temptation is, is all the more joyful and all the more easier. And when we muck up and make mistakes, we come back into grace in, in freedom and in joy because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Let me just pray for us as we close. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for all that he's achieved for us in the cross. Lord, and we pray as we fight against sin and, and, and uh, this week, Lord, let us do so, doing so under the grace of God. Lord, let us do all that we can. We want to put boundaries in. We want to do those things, but help us again to lean in and rely and see Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.